God, we come and we marvel at who you are. Give us the grace to behold your glory that we might see and be satisfied. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as I said, I'm one of the pastors here, and some of you are thinking, uh, you're a pastor here, and I've been here for a couple months, and I've never seen you. And that is because uh, our church graciously gave me a sabbatical, uh, most of which I was able to take this summer. There'll be a few weeks in late October that I'll be away as well. Uh, But this summer, I was able to get away for a season of refreshment and renewal, spending some extra time with, with family and just spending unhindered time meditating on and marinating in the beauty of Jesus. And so, church, I just want to say thank you. Uh, You gave me a gift that I did not deserve. Uh, You gave my family a gift that we did not deserve. You are generous, and I praise God for you. Uh, Hebrews 13 says, be a joy to pastor. And I just want to say that you, beloved church family, are a joy to pastor. And I want to thank my fellow elders, Nathan and Chris and Ray somewhere, uh, Nick and Chris, Uh, You picked up a lot that I just dropped on your plate and left. Uh, And I praise God for that. I miss meeting with you and praying with you regularly. Uh, Steve Reed, where is Steve? Steve's somewhere on here right here. Lauren is somewhere over here probably chasing kids. Yep, she's already up chasing kids and Catherine's away. Uh, But you three as well picked up a lot. Deacons and deaconesses. I just praise God that this church does not need me. Uh, And you just, everything is just fine without me. That's a good reminder. So thank you uh, for just being a joy. I do come back uh, with a heart warm and full. Uh, And so, as I mentioned, I spent a lot of my time this summer uh, reading. And in Scripture, I just, I I devoted my attention to reading and rereading and rereading and rereading the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So while all of Scripture is about Jesus, uh, we can think of the Gospels as kind of an 8K, ultra high-def picture of Christ. They allow us to see the nuanced contours and the vivid colors of the life of Jesus. And I just wanted to look at him in that way. And so I read and reread the Gospels. And outside of the Bible, uh, I mainly read on the atonement. That's just the cross of Jesus. And I I was trying to answer two questions. What was God's motivation for the cross? And what is the accomplishment by the cross? And some of you are thinking, that's so simple, Joey. And I agree, in one way, it really is simple, right? John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So simple, a child can understand, trust, repent, and believe. And kids, you should know that. that what I just said might be the most important thing I say for you this morning. That God so loved the world that he gave his son. You don't have to have all your questions answered. You never will. And yet you can sincerely trust Jesus, that he died for your sins and he rose again, that you might know and enjoy God. So kids, let me invite you to ask your parents more about John 3.16. And if they need help, tell them to come back at 5 p.m. tonight, because our brother Matt Louie is going to preach a sermon on that very verse. And so if they can't answer your question, be like, Mom, Dad, you probably need to go hear Mr. Matt preach, and then tell me what he said. So come back at 5, listen to that. So in one answer, one way, it's so simple. Yet at another level, when we ask those questions, God's infinite mercies 
they will be what we comprehend for all of eternity. For all of eternity, we will look at God's goodness and the person and the work of Christ and we will praise him and we will never plumb the depth of the meaning and the wonder and the weight and the worth of Christ. And so I wanted to spend a little time thinking about that. The Father, Son, and Spirit are revealed in the cross of Christ. And so that's what I got to do. And so if you're wondering, I read several books. If you're wondering, like, what would be, Joey, one book that you would recommend? If you have not read The Cross of Christ by John Stott, that would be my first recommendation. I read it in seminary 15 years ago and reread it this summer, and it will both inform your mind and inflame your heart. The Cross of Christ by John Stott. If you've already read that and you want another recommendation, uh, just come find me. You can talk to me after service or email me. I'd be glad to ask kind of what are you looking for, and I'd be happy to provide some recommendations. Uh, Needless to say, I come back after meditating on the Gospels and literally reading thousands of pages about the Gospel ready to preach. And so... Um, one of the verses that captured my soul over and over and over was Luke chapter 15, verse 20. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you need to use one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you, you can find it on page 874, page 874. And so this chapter may be familiar to many of you, and that verse in particular captured my heart. And so... That's going to guide our time this morning, and it'll be more of kind of a thematic meditation on that verse than pure exposition. Next week, we will begin what book? First Thessalonians. That is correct. So next week, we'll begin a sermon series walking through the book of First Thessalonians. This morning, we're going to do Luke 15 and some related passages that I will bring in. But for now, let me read God's word to us. Luke chapter 15, hear the word of God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, as to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. For what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, but There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. In this chapter, there's three parables. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And parables are meant to communicate one overarching truth. And and Jesus stacks these parables together. And I think the main idea is pretty clear. God delights to save sinners. Uh, We could say that the Pharisees' complaint in verse 2 is actually the main point of the parable. Yes, Jesus receives sinners and eats with them happily. Uh, We see it again in verse 7. The joy of a shepherd finding his lost sheep prompts Jesus to say, Just so I tell you, heaven's breaking out in praise. And then again, in verse 10, the joy of the woman finding her lost coin prompts Jesus to say, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then again, in verse 24, the father finds his son. For this, my son was dead and is alive. Again, he is lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. The main point of Luke 15 is clear. God delights to save sinners. God happily seeks and saves the lost. This is Jesus' main message in Luke 15. And to press in a little more, I want to meditate on verse 20. And out of this verse, I want to remind us of one sobering truth and invite us to savor two beautiful realities. 
The sobering truth is this. We were once far off. Two beautiful realities. First, God sees you and runs to you. Second, God loves you and he likes you. Sobering truth, remember that you were far off. Uh, The parable of the lost son, which has become known as the parable of the prodigal son, begins with the youngest son saying to his father, verse 12, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. So here we have a son asking his father for an inheritance. When does someone usually get an inheritance? What happens to the parent? They're dead. They die. So this son is essentially saying to the father, you're dead to me. I want your stuff, but I do not want you. That's what he's saying. And in the parable, the father complies. The son gets the wealth, and he squanders it away with reckless living. He spends everything. So now, instead of living in his father's house, he's a hired hand in a faraway country. Working with pigs, only eating what they eat. And remember, pigs to the Jewish people were, were unclean. And so now the son is alienated from his father, unclean, impoverished, far off. And here, Jesus is giving us a picture of sin. Our sin says to God what the Son said to the Father. You're dead to me. I want your stuff, but I do not want you. And left to ourselves, this is a sobering truth. This is us. We are separated from God. We are unclean before God. We are impoverished, having nothing to offer to God. And so we see in this parable, the younger son is far off from his father. But we see something else, don't we? What about the older brother? He too is far off. The older brother is angry at the generosity of the father toward his rebellious brother. We see that in verse 29. The older brother is filled with pride. He thinks he's better than his younger brother. And because he is better, he deserves what his brother is getting. The older brother says, listen, I've kept all your rules all the time and you never gave me a party. Do you see that the older brother is in the same situation as the younger? He's keeping the rules not because he loves his father, but he wants his father's stuff. He's saying the same thing with his heart that the, old, the younger brother said with his mouth. You're dead to me. I don't want you. I want your stuff. Here's the point. We can be far off from God through our rebellion, breaking all the rules. And we can be far off from God through our religion trying to keep all the rules for the wrong reasons. We can be far off from God. And so this reminds us that sin is deeper than what we might realize. So as you know, I've got two daughters, and we used a catechism growing up, and one of the catechism questions was, what is sin? And the answer is, sin is rebellion against God, rejection of God's law. We usually stop there. 
But we went on loving something more than God. Loving something more than God. So we, we, we typically try to define sin like breaking the rules. But you can keep all the rules and not have love. Right? So I try to keep all the traffic rules in D.C., sometimes more successful than others. But I try to keep all the rules. I try to, to I know where a lot of the speed cameras are and stoplight cameras. I know where they are, parking signs. I try to obey them. Joel's laughing because I got a ticket in his car running a stop sign. True story. I try to keep all the rules, right? But what happens when I don't get a ticket? I don't love those cameras. I don't have great deep affection for the the D.C. government officials who make those laws when I don't get a ticket, when I obey the rules. I can obey all the rules and not have love. Rule keeping alone isn't enough to have a loving relationship. Trying to keep all God's rules is important. Trying to keep all of God's rules, not motivated by a love for him, but as a way to get stuff from him, is actually rebellion against him. So we often do a corporate confession here, and one of them that we read says this. Forgive our careless actions and our misplaced affections. We confess our sin is deeper than what we do, but also in our disordered loves. Sin is not just our actions, but down in our affections, right? So left to ourselves, sin is the core of our being. So I am not a Swifty. I am not a Taylor Swift fan. Some of you are. I know two of her songs. Uh, and by no, like I know they exist. One of them is Karma. Um, and at the risk of ruining your listening experience, I regret to inform you that that song has horrible theology. Karma is not a God, which is a breeze in your hair and a cat in your lap. That is bad theology. That's the one song I'm familiar with. The other song I am familiar with is Antihero. And Antihero actually has pretty good theology. The chorus of this song, which she repeats about 8,000 times, <laughs> says, It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. She is more true. And she recognizes. That's right. Hi, it's Joey. I'm the problem. It's me. Sin is not just what we do left to ourselves. It's who we are. So non-Christian friend, I'm thankful you're here this morning. And I wonder if you've considered this way of sin, not just what we do, but who we are. Maybe even trying to keep all the rules for the wrong reasons because in that there is no love, there is no joy, there is no hope, there is no happiness. See, the, both the path of immoral self-discovery and self-righteous moral conformity both lead to rebellion against God. If you want to think more about that, ask the friend that brought you. Say, can you better explain what that guy was trying to explain? Can you help me understand how both rebellion and keeping rules for wrong religion is actually can be rebellion against God. Can you help me understand that? Kids and students, this is important for you to realize. Some of you are growing up in church, and it can seem like the goal is to get you to obey rules. 
That is not the goal. The goal is not to obey a bunch of rules. The goal is to love Jesus, to treasure him, to honor him. That's the goal. For my Christian brothers and sisters, we must remember that we too are far off. We were far off. Maybe your rebellion looked a bit more like the younger brothers. Open debauchery, drunkenness, substance abuse, proudly affirming or participating in wicked cultural practices and positions, immorality, stealing, adultery, fornication. Or maybe it was a bit like the older brother. Right? Your rebellion looked more like Bible reading and church going and accomplishment achieving to look better than others. To show God that, you know, he should be really proud that you're on his team. Luke 15 is inviting all of us to repent. To repent of our outward rebellion and our self-righteous inward rebellion. And to keep repenting. Christians are not perfect. Sometimes we, believe it or not, if you're not a Christian, we are not perfect. And sometimes we still act like the younger brother or the older brother. And Jesus is saying, repent, come back. Brothers and sisters, remembering this truth that we were once far off should make us humble. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. It should not happen. These truths should make us humble. None of us deserve the grace of God. Jesus is inviting you to, are there pockets in your heart where you self-righteously judge others? Where you think you're better than them? Do you get angry at God when things don't go the way you want because you think he owes you something because you're obedient? And remembering this truth should make us hopeful. Humble and hopeful. If God so graciously saved you, saved me, there's hope for that person. He can save the unbelieving spouse. He can redeem the aging parent. He can rescue the wayward child. He can bring salvation to that neighbor, that friend, that coworker. You think it's too far off. Maybe you've written them off. God hasn't. Be hopeful. No one is too far off from God's redeeming and rescuing love. And here's why. Though we were far off, God sees us and God runs to us. Beloved, that's what let's consider. Let's consider this beautiful reality that God sees us and God runs to us. Verse 20 again. While he was a far way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and run, ran to him. Imagine the joy this son must have felt. According to verse 19 and 21, he thought he'd messed up so badly that he was unworthy of his father's affection. Yet his father sees him and runs to him. The, the, father, the, the son tries to give an explanation, but the father won't have it. He's quick, bring the robe, put some bling on his fingers, put the nicest shoes on his feet. Let's have a party, a big meal, a feast. Let's celebrate. As, as one pastor points out, the father is essentially saying, listen, I'm not going to wait until you're, you've paid off your debt. I'm not going to wait until you've, you've groveled and won my favor. You're not going to earn your way back into this family. I am simply going to take you back. I will cover your nakedness, your poverty, rags, and robes with my honor. 
the father saw him and ran to him. And here we have a picture of God who sees his children and pursues them. I've been a pastor long enough now to know that some of you identify with the words of the younger brother. You feel that you're no longer worthy. You're tempted to believe that God doesn't see you, and if he does, he's repulsed by what he sees. You think that you're a disappointment to him, and he's disgusted by you. You might believe because of what you've done. Those immoral acts from the past, the lying, the stealing, the taking advantage of others, the debauchery you participated in, maybe even last night. You're tempted to think that you're no longer worthy of God's attention and affection. For some of you, it's for other reasons. You've been taken advantage of. You've been sinned against grievously. You've been violated and mistreated. And you think that's now your your damaged goods. That God would have nothing to do with you. But he's unwilling to set his attention and affection on you because of what's been done to you. But I just want to tell you that's not true. Jesus stacks these three parables, each one highlighting the seeing, seeking, love, For that which was lost. Just like the shepherd sought out the sheep. Just like the woman sought out the coin. Just like the father sought out the son. So Christian, your God sought you out. Do you see how warming this is? That God runs to us. We don't have to run to him. See, God doesn't just make salvation possible, hoping some might become his children one day. No, God effectually saves his children, ensuring every one of them makes it home. God has no orphans. When Jesus died and said, it is finished, he meant what he said. It is finished. The Lord of heaven saw you and ran to you, beloved brothers and sisters. He bought you and he brought you to himself. He calls you as personally as Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb by name. He doesn't demand you clean yourself up. You can't. He doesn't demand that you pay him back. That's impossible. He runs to you and he robes you with the righteousness of Jesus and promises you unsearchable riches in Christ. And now you are defined. You are defined by who you are and whose you are, not what you've done or what's been done to you. As I ponder that truth over the summer, 1 Corinthians 6 kept coming to mind. Paul writes to the church there, a church that he started. He said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what is Paul saying? You were far off. Remember you were far off. But praise be to God, Paul does not stop there. He doesn't go on and say, and because of this, you're unworthy, sorry. No, he continues in verse 11 and 12. And such were some of you. 
But now you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you, but not anymore. You're clean. You're justified. You have the living Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. The saying goes, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Yes, our need is great, great, but our Christ is greater. And so will you come rest in the arms of the God who sees you and runs to you? Beloved, this is your God. And you should be asking, why? Why would God do this? Why would he act like this? Well, I think the parable gives us a clue. Again, verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. The father was moved by what? His compassion. Those words stopped me in my tracks. I don't know how many times I saw them. Felt compassion for him. Think about this. This son tells the father, I wish you were dead to me. I want your stuff. And the father gives him the stuff, and he wastes everything. Everything. And now he's standing face to face with his father. Dirty, poor, unclean, hungry, So if you're the parent, what do you say? I'm probably uh, questioning, lecturing, rebuking, chastising. Yet, here we have no hint of condemnation, only compassion. The father is moved by his love for his son, so it costs him greatly. And Jesus wants us to know, so it is with him. So it is with our God. See, God is not like us. What most freely flows from him, what most naturally comes out of God is not condemnation, but compassion. Beloved, savor this reality. God loves you. God loves you. I know that sounds so simple. Maybe even trite. It can become like that background music at the restaurant. It's kind of there. It's not too annoying. It's kind of nice, but you don't really notice it. Or it's like a bumper sticker. You see it, you read it, but you don't pay attention because you're so busy with your life. You just want to move on. Trying to honk at the car in front of you. Get out of the way. I know God loves me. Come on, let's, let's do some stuff. Too often. It's minimized or distorted. I think we tend to believe that somehow God's love is a forced love. I spent a lot of time thinking about this summer. That that consciously or subconsciously, we believe that there's an angry God in heaven and a nice Jesus who came to earth. And his job is to manipulate the Father to somehow kind of love us. Like that's 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 what's what's happening. That's that's what we can consciously or subconsciously 
think. And, and so now, when we say God loves you, there's, it's like a reluctant relationship. It's like that roommate you found on Craigslist that kind of has to live with you. You don't really like them, but they're, they're there. Like, they have to be there. That's how we can view our God's love to us. I just want you to know that is not the way Scripture speaks of God and his love. Listen to this gem from 1 John 4. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice, the wrath quencher for our sins. Notice verse 8. God is love. Love is not God. God is love. He's the definition, the essence, the fountain of love. Love flows from God. And how is this love shown? Verse 9 and 10. God the Father loves so much that he sends his willing son who loves so much that he's going to give his life to pay the penalty for our sin, to die on the cross that we might live. It's crucial that you notice the order of verse 9 and 10. What comes first? God's love. Then what comes? The cross. The cross is confirmation of God's love, not the cause of his love. Get that, beloved. The the cross, Jesus, is confirmation of God's love, not the cause. So do you see the, the work of Jesus does not force a father to love us. The work of Jesus flows from our triune God's love for us. I spent so much time on sabbatical thinking about this. That God doesn't love us because there is a cross. There is a cross because God loves us. Because God is love. Everything flows from who he is. It's what John is saying here. God is love. God does not become loving. For all of eternity, the Father has loved the Son, and the Son has loved the Father, and they share this love in and through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's God. Go read about that this afternoon in John 17. So here's what this means. God is not first creator. God is not first ruler. God is not first king. Power, authority, and rule are not the primary things that define God. They're not foundational to him. Think about it this way. As as Michael Reeves so helpfully asks, before the creation of the world, what was God doing? What was God doing before he created anything? Well, we don't have to guess. He tells us. John 17, 24. Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is the God we're talking about. A God who is Father, who has been eternally loving his Son. This is God. 
oh, this is so different from the way any other religion thinks about God. I, I want to go preach, but I can't. But just, this is God, Father, Son, Spirit, eternally loving before the foundation of the world. And guess what else he was doing before the foundation of the world? Well, you don't have to guess. Scripture tells us. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, even as he chose us in him. You say it with me. Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. What was his motivation? In what? In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself. God chose us even when we were far off. He saw us and ran to us before the foundation of the world. And what was his motivation? Because he loves us. The same love the Father, Son, and Spirit share is the same love that we are swept up into. It's not a reluctant love. It is a life-giving, overflowing, affectionate, happy, joyful, satisfying love. Go read John 17 this afternoon, particularly 23 through 26, and just let your mind be blown. God loves us with the same love he loves his son. It's incredible. Okay, I, I know that was a lot. That was, that was a lot of Trinitarian theology and a lot of Bible. Let me just summarize. Before all of eternity, the Father is loving the Son, and the Son is loving the Father through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And together, one God, three persons, in loving agreement, they set their affection on an undeserving wayward people and do everything necessary to bring them home. And now, because the Father sent the Son, the Son willingly came, the Spirit indwells and regenerates, we are swept up into that forever, eternal, triune love. What kind of God is this? How lavish is his love? How incomparable is his beauty? To know that before the foundation of the world was created, God, eternal triune love, overflowed. And he set his affections on you, beloved, in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, the eternal triune counsel of divine love says, I love you, Hannah. I love you, Steve. I love you, Josiah. I love you, Marcia. I love you, JC. That's what God did. Not a generic people like, I hope they come. No, I love you, and I'm coming after you, and I'm bringing you home with me forever. Oh. And you might be asking, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know if God loves me? Well, that's a great question. The fact you're asking is a wonderful. And here's what I'd say. Are you trusting Christ? Are you repenting of your sin and running to Jesus? Don't look to yourself. Don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. That's how we know. That's where assurance comes from, not from ourself. It comes from Jesus. And to be clear, our repenting does not cause God to love us. Our repenting is confirmation that his grace is already at work in us. That's what's happening. 
Don't look to yourself for assurance. Look to Christ. Brothers and sisters, God's decision to save you wasn't some forced, reluctant plan B, like, oh, they screwed up big time. I've got to figure something out. It's not his love. Because God loves, because God loves, Jesus died for us, paying the penalty for our sin, for all those who repent and believe. And now we, we receive compassion, not condemnation. In Christ, you are not guilty. In Christ, you are not unworthy. In Christ, you are not rejected. In Christ, you are not hopeless. You are not any of those things. Because Christ conquered the grave, you are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are cleansed. You are justified. You're loved. Is that enough for you? It's not enough for God. Because he loves you. And get this. He actually likes you. God, get that. That that wonderful reality. God loves us and he actually likes us. That's crazy. Uh, Again, we see it here in Luke 15. The son runs home. The father doesn't say, son, I love you, and and I'm glad you've come to your senses, and I'm glad you've come back home. But uh, I regret to inform you that you are grounded for the rest of your life. And I am glad that you're in our home, but really, I'm really upset at what you said to me. And I'm really mad that you lost all my stuff. And so I just need some space for like a long time. No. What does the text say? What did the father do? He felt compassion and did what? Ran to him. Embraced him. And kissed him. The father throws a party celebrating his son is home. He's thrilled that his son is home. So it is with our God. He loves us and he likes us. See, we, we tend to separate love and liking. Right? You're probably thinking to somebody right now, I love that person, but man, I don't like them and I'm happy not to spend time with them. I love my family so much, I moved away from them. We, we, we often joke, we say things like that. So we separate these two. But we must not separate what God has joined. He loves and likes all of his beloved children. He is like the Father here. There's affection, intimacy, joy, happiness, hope. He embraces and he kisses. This made me think of a story that I've shared with you a long time ago. I think it's worth sharing again. And it's a doctor who recalls um, watching this happen after one of his surgeries. He writes, A young husband sits in the recovery room where his wife lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish-looking. A a, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, is now severed. Her mouth will be disfigured from now on. Will my mouth always be like this, she slurs. The doctor, I, respond, yes, it will. She nods and is silent. But her husband smiles. I like it, he says. 
It's kind of cute. Then he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. He twists his lips to accommodate hers to show that their kiss still works. Beloved, Christ was twisted upon a cross that you might know God loves you and God likes you. There is something about you, beloved, that thrills the soul of God. You are not a nuisance to him. He is not annoyed by you. And to be clear, the point is not how awesome we are. The point is how gracious, kind, merciful, and lavish he is. And so I invite you to consider these realities. Will you consider that God actually loves you and likes you? How might this reality, this beautiful reality, shape the way you think about reading Scripture? Communing with God in prayer. Gathering with God's people to worship Him. How might this reality help you navigate unmet godly desires? How might this reality that God loves you and likes you give you perspective when you're tempted to believe that you're defined by what other people think about you? That you're defined by your accomplishments or your failures? Kids, students, how might this reality give you peace when you're excluded from the friend group at school? When you're rejected by that person you like? That you don't make the team that you wanted to? Or you're made fun of? How might this reality speak into that? Beloved, how might God's love for you and pleasure in you inform the way you respond when you're sinned against by your spouse, by your coworker, by your neighbor, by your friend, by another member of this church? How might this reality anchor you when anxiety and shame threaten to overwhelm you? How might it give hope in the midst of tragedy? How might these realities that God sees you and runs to you, he loves you and he likes you, how might it compel you to pursue fellow church members, even those that annoy you? How might it compel you to boldly and zealously share the gospel knowing no one is too far off from God? How might these realities inflame your soul to treasure Christ? See, beloved, we were once far off. But God saw us and ran to us. God loves us and he likes us. God delights to save sinners so much. Like the Father here, he's preparing a feast for us. Soon enough, Jesus will return, beloved. And he'll bring us home to heaven. Or we could say, we could say he'll bring heaven to earth. And we will enjoy. We will eat, drink, be merry, work, fellowship, play. All because of God's glorious grace as we behold the treasure of Christ himself together forever. There's a feast ahead. God delights to save sinners. And when we consider these truths, we will more fully delight in him. Friend, if you're not trusting Christ, come. Talk to the friend who brought you. Come talk to me. We'll be glad to share more about this God with you. Let's pray.
Lord, we rejoice in the weighty wonder of what we have just begun to scratch the surface of this morning. Help us both comprehend the beautiful simplicity that you run to us, love us, and like us, and yet continue to plumb the eternal wonders of what kind of God would do this. God, help us. May we be zealous for your name. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.